This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, December the 2nd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Not my strongest go. I've, I've done better, but I try to change it for you every day. So I'm running out of iterations of go. Maybe I need to change the intro of the show completely just to keep it fresh. I'll get back to you on that. Coming up on the show today, it's news panel time. Michelle and Joita will be here to wrap up the week of news with me today in the wake of for $13 billion. We discuss the economy and consider competition in the financial sector. Around COVID-19 lockdowns in China. And this one's a little bit interesting. We're going to need Michelle's help understanding what's at issue here. But genetic evidence is being used to solve cold cases. So we'll explore the intersection between crime and genealogy. But let's begin with our top story of the day. And once again, we find ourselves talking about the economy. The Canadian economy added about 10,000 jobs in November. And the unemployment rate fell to 5.1% from 5.2%. That's another consecutive month of job growth after slowdowns earlier in the year. And this does indeed set the stage for another Bank of Canada interest rate announcement next week. The U.S. will also release its November jobs data this morning ahead of their Fed's next interest rate announcement. Let's keep talking about the economy. A new report by the Center for Future Work found that growth in corporate profits this year has been concentrated in a small number of sectors. Emily Javesky crunches the numbers. The report looked at the profits of the 52 business sectors tracked by Statistics Canada, finding just under a third of these sectors were responsible for driving overall corporate profits up. Combined after-tax profits in the 15 most profitable sectors grew by 89% during the most recent 12-month period, compared to the four quarters before the pandemic hit. The oil and gas sector tops the most profitable list by far, with a $38 billion increase in profits, or more than 1,000% since 2019. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Wait, the oil and gas sector being super profitable, but I thought the carbon tax was killing the Canadian energy sector. I thought that was preventing hardworking people from getting jobs. It's bad government policy. It's almost like oil and gas is driven by a commodity that has nothing to do with government prices or government policies. And and I wonder if those hardworking employees are seeing that increase that the companies are seeing in the profits. I wonder, I wonder, I'm going to scratch my chin and wonder and contemplate the carbon tax killing the energy sector and their thousand percent increase in profits. Interesting. Uh, We've been talking a lot about labor strife in Canada the last few months, and we continue to do so with issues around Bill 124 in Ontario. I'll 
have an update on that a little bit later in the show. Well, there's been a possible rail strike looming in the United States, and the U.S. Senate has passed legislation to stop job action. Sagar McGanny has the latest. The Senate passed a bill binding rail companies and workers to a proposed settlement reached in September. Some unions involved then rejected the deal, leading to a potential strike next week, which the Biden administration and business leaders warned could lead to massive job losses and pain around the holidays. The House voted yesterday to impose the agreement, and the bill now goes to President Biden, who hours earlier defended the settlement. I negotiated a contract no one else could negotiate. With pay raises, but not more paid leave. The president says he'll keep pushing to get that for rail workers and every other worker. Sagar Magani, Washington. Let's come back to Canada, where Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino says the government is going to open consultations on whether Canada should follow the U.S. and Australia and create a foreign agent registry. The government acknowledges that foreign governments and organizations will routinely influence Canadian policies, officials, and the democratic process in visible and legal ways, like diplomacy, for example. But Mendicino says the landscape of foreign interference is becoming increasingly increasingly complex. He cites issues of cyber attacks and misinformation as areas of concern. The minister did note that any kind of foreign registry should be approached with care and trepidation. And one more note to share with you before we get to our daily polls. Let's get to Volcano Watch 2022. Scientists are monitoring lava flows from Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano. No serious damage has occurred, and it appears the lava is slowing. Ken Hans is with the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. It has slowed considerably as we uh, were forecasting as it reached the uh, flat ground at the base of Mauna Loa. The volcano has drawn thousands of visitors and is turning into a tourist boon. Hotels in the Hilo region are fully booked because people love to run towards the danger. That's who we are. There's lava coming to you. Well, I will come to the lava. Well, not I. That's, that's, that's the royal I. You will go to the lava. I will stay away from the lava. I run away from the danger. I'm all about fight or flight, and most likely flight. Let's get to our daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday's daily poll, we asked you, What kind of app do you use the most on your phone? 67% of you said social media. Of course, there's a natural bias in the poll. It's taking place on social media. 22% of you said content streaming. 0% of you said navigation. And 11% of you said other. But then you didn't write in what other was. So you know what that means. I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to find you. And I'm going to lick something in your house. And I won't tell you what. But just get some Dave saliva on it. At Accessible Media on, on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's question, this is going to lead into one of our conversations on the news panel with Michelle and Joita, but I want to hear what Grace and Alex have to think first. Are banking fees too high in Canada? Yes or no? Are banking fees too high in Canada? I think I know what this is going to be. I'm pretty sure this is going to come back at 100% because it's a populist question through and through. Of course we all think that banking fees are too high. There's some preposterousness to the way we're charged bank fees in Canada. For example, the more money you have in your account, the less likely you are to get hit with a bank fee. Like, that's pretty wild. Although, if you take a closer look at how the banking model operates by having more money in your account, they can lend out more of your money to make more profits, record profits, 
that we're that we've seen in the last couple quarters. But still, this idea that it's the wealthiest people who pay the lowest fees, or if you keep a certain balance, like for example, there's one account at my bank where if you keep more than fifteen thousand dollars in your account, you can have the premium package, which costs sixty dollars a month, just waived for you, and then you get all these fancy things like overdraft and all the transfers in the world you could want, and wire transfers, and bippity boppity boo, as a uh, is that Mary Poppins who does bippity boppity boo? As they would say, there's a it's Cinderella who does bippity boppity boo. Thank you, Grace. I appreciate that. I need I need this is why I need young people around me. They can keep me up to date with what's going on in the uh, the Disney world that has long lost its space in my brain. But suffice to say, keep ten grand in your account. Keep fifteen grand in your account. Yeah, yeah. Get the premium package. No, no. We'll waive all those fees. Don't worry. At the end of the month, you get that back. Hey, person with ten dollars in your account, we're gonna take that ten dollars. We need that $10 for our record billion-dollar profits. That's how we be. So, yes, Populist and Comrade Brown is out in full force today. Let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, what do you think? Are banking fees too high in Canada? Yeah, so, Dave, I, I think I'm on the same uh, same line of thought as you are. You know, it, it just it's how they're structured, how they're set up, the fact that it's like the more money you have in the bank account at any given time, the better it is for a, the bank, and then B, for you, because you're not getting all those fees. But when you dip below a certain amount, I remember at one point I had uh, one of my bank accounts I had been moving money around and, and whatnot, and I guess I dipped below that like that line, and then all of a sudden I started getting fees. It's like, why, why am I getting charged for having, you know, still like several thousand dollars in, in my account, but it, apparently it, it dropped below that threshold, and it's like, oh, you've got to pay for this, you pay for that, the minimum holding fee or whatever they want to classify it as. I, I, I think that's very um, ridiculous how they're they're able to do that and stuff. But we, we all sign it because we don't fully know all the fine prints, how everything is set up. I yeah, mean, and you can't just be keeping I, money under your mattress. The people yeah, people frown know, upon like, that. Right? And, and the thing is, too, is the fact it's like you feel like, okay, well, it's at a bank. It's in an account. It should be generating some interest or or, or it's going to be better to be having it there in one place than to have it around the house or in cash or, or uh, some less, quote unquote, secure place. But uh, I, I think for me, when it actually comes to the day to day, it's less the banking fees that really get me. It's, it's all these other auxiliary fees, whether it's a different accounts you have, the like credit card fees and things like that, using ATM machines, it's all these auxiliary things to actually access the money that becomes really impactful on a day-to-day basis because you're more likely to go about and try to do it that way with your debit cards or or visas, things like that, whereas the actual money that's in the account and, and doing it that way and actually holding it, it's not as impactful or I'm not as aware of it. Maybe it's a better way to say it where it's like, it's more direct when I'm actually trying to buy things and I'm, I'm seeing these fees come back to me when I'm, I want to use my debit card. Grace Scofield, are you willing to join us on Populist Island and say banking fees are too high? Yes, I am. Now, I can't come up at this with a different angle. I am still a student, so I do have student accounts, oh, that's which a means good life. the fees are waived. But the way that they get student and youth accounts, before I switched my student account, I had a youth account. And they would charge me for extra debits. Boo. So I think at the time, I was probably about 16. I had like 15 debits a month. And at 16, you're working. You're going to go get smoothies at the mall. You're going to go to Tim Hortons on your lunch break at school. And they would charge me like $1 or $2 for every extra debit. And that's where they get the student and youth accounts. 
because they just decide to charge you for, for actually using your card. That's why you have to be a Dave Brown-esque cash operation. Yes. Just take out a big wad of cash and then just uh, <laughs> make it rain all over the place. Uh, Grace, we'll check in with you a little bit later in the show. Thank you for your thought on that one. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Hey, maybe you work for a bank and you say, Dave, you are wrong. You're wrong, Dave Brown. Well, send us a detailed email, and I'll read it on the air. I promise. Feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Now, Dave mentioned precipitation, making it rain. Well, we'll see what the forecast has to offer. Uh, starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's cloudy, but it's becoming a mix of sun and clouds later in the day. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high there is 2 degrees. Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow this morning. It's also a high of 2 degrees, but wind chill may make it feel more like minus 8. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well. The high is 3, but also feeling like minus 8 with that wind chill. Now to Ottawa, Ontario, mainly cloudy, a high of 2 degrees as well, but with that wind chill, it's going to feel closer to minus 13. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, a high of 7, but with that wind chill, it's going to feel like negative 7. So it's quite a bit of a, a drop there. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with snow starting later in the day. It's going to be a high of 3, but that wind chill going to make it feel like minus eight over to winnipeg manitoba it's blowing snow in the morning then it'll turn cloudy so there's wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and an advisory is in effect due to the snow and blowing snow the high is negative 11 but falling in that wind chill it's going to make it feel like minus 33 so very blistery out in winnipeg in saskatoon saskatchewan it's even colder because it's mainly sunny and the high is 20, minus 23 degrees. But that wind chill makes it feel like minus 44 degrees. And Good Lord. Extreme, Good yeah, Lord, minus extreme, 44. <laughs> an extreme cold warning is in effect for the area of Saskatoon. And don't worry, Dave. Oh, there's more cold weather in this forecast. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Over. But, but minus 44. Uh, come on now. That's like, that's like I'm moving weather. I, well... Yes, but as I say, just just wait. There's more cold weather, more cold weather warnings in effect. It's December. We can expect these types of things now. So to Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and clouds are rolling in later. The high, negative 16, but with a wind chill of minus 34. Not quite as cold as Saskatoon. There's also an extreme cold warning in effect there. Now, minus 34 is reasonable. I've lived plenty of days in my life at minus 34. Minus 44, that is, this is desolate place. We should all leave. Dave, as I say, just wait. Things get colder as we move across the country. It's a large country. Canada has a lot to offer, especially when we head up north. So, But before we do, let's head to Edmonton, Alberta. It's mainly sunny and cloudy rolling in later. Minus 19 is the high, and a wind chill is minus 38. There is also that extreme cold warning in effect. I know it's not minus 44, but let's check in with Yellowknife Northwest Territories, which is partially cloudy and potential snow in the morning. It's minus 34 as the high, and that wind chill, Dave, 
minus 49. Yeah, that's the Arctic, though. That's part of the deal. It's, yes, but we're also dealing with an extreme Arctic chill across the prairies. It's it's blistery cold wind dates. I've been in, in the minus 40 category. It's cold regardless. At a certain point, it just feels cold. So, you know, you, you take the, the good and the bad. So let's move on to Vancouver, BC, where it's slightly warmer, but still dealing with uh, winter conditions because it's cloudy and snow is starting later in the day. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is two but it feels like minus nine and a special weather statement is in effect due to the wet and hazardous conditions expected later today in Vancouver. And finally over to Victoria, BC. It's a mix of snow and rain today with more rain as the day goes on. There's also wind gusts up to 90 kilometers per hour near the water. So there is a wind warning in effect for the area. The high is five degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. The seals, otters, and orca whales are not going to enjoy that wind around Vancouver Island. Will somebody please think about the seals? Coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel and we'll continue our conversation about the economy and discuss a lack of competition in the financial sector. Maybe I should put a question mark on that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, so that means it's news panel time. Let's welcome into the show Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Good morning, friends. So let's start today by talking about the economy, some specifically some news from the financial sector. The major Canadian banks released their quarterly earnings this week. They all made profits. To avoid getting bogged down in a bunch of numbers, here's the bottom line. Profits pretty much doubled for all the major banks, except CIBC, who actually the profit went down to $1.14 billion for the quarter. What are you doing, CIBC, only making a billion dollars in the last three months? Um, There were also a couple acquisitions of note this week. The major one, RBC reaching a deal to buy HSBC for roughly $13 billion. And a smaller deal, Desjardins bought Guardian for $750 million. Guardian, if you want to know, is an insurance and mutual fund company. It all has me thinking about competition in the financial sector, a sector that is essentially protected by government regulation, but funded with your money as a consumer. And I'm pointing at the camera aggressively as I say that. Your money as a consumer. For fear of being called a populist, Michelle, is there a lack of competition in our financial sector and is it getting worse? Um, I feel it's pretty safe to say that this is not a competitive sector. The very fact that we have what is colloquially called the big six and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about, speaks to exactly how little competition there is in the finance sector in Canada. Um, The lack of competition is already being cited as a concern with this RBC deal specifically, and even a little bit with the Desjardins deal. They've been snapping up some properties in the past uh, few years, so that that has uh, potentially contributed to the situation. But yeah, definitely lack of competition is a factor in the sector. Uh, Whether one considers that a pro or a con, though, really depends on who you ask. And that's been what's been interesting to watch play out in the in the last little bit, as especially with this RBC deal being announced. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll cut a, I'll cut a slice of that pie in a second, but I want to give Joey to the 
same opportunity to answer my Captain Obvious question. Is there a lack of competition in our financial sector, Joita? Well, I think that actually depends on who you talk to. Um, there are people who have been proponents of the RBC deal in particular who have said that the acquisition of HSBC will not impact competition in any negative way. Whether you believe them or disbelieve them is besides the point. But the contention is that because HSBC accounts for some 2% of the market share, the takeover by RBC really won't have all that much of an impact. But of course, it's evident that the deals, uh, the acquisitions are good for the banks, the big six, as Michelle pointed out. And there are other voices that are disputing the fact that these uh, these most recent acquisitions are a good thing and have bemoaned the lack of competition in the sector. Um, I know that there was an economist um, who is uh, called Robert Clark, is based out of Queen's University, and he talked to the CP about uh, the lack of competition and how it's really hurting the sector. Um, the real issue that he pointed out is that with the acquisition of HSBC, it's really going to hurt the available interest rates that consumers have access to. And I think when we think about, um, you know, the kinds of choices that consumers have as have past mergers, we haven't really had large scale mergers in Canada. I think the most the, the biggest one that comes to mind was in the 90s when TD Bank acquired Canada Trust. And at that at at that time in the '90s, there had been some moves, I believe, to 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 merge Royal Bank with the Bank of Montreal, and the Competition Bureau stepped in and stopped it precisely because they yeah. felt it would be far too big. So there's always this push and pull between people who believe that yes, acquisitions are necessary from a business point of view, and they don't hurt the sector and they don't hurt the end user. And there are of course people who viciously argue the other side. I think the interesting caveat to consider is that. Um, there's a couple of factors here. One, the banking sector itself and the market has evolved considerably in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, especially with online banking, where you maybe as a consumer do have more choice than you did back in the 90s. But I think um, the lack of competition and you know the lack of choices, if you will, might have more of an impact on seniors as consumers who may not have access to online banking in quite the same way. And again, while this is clearly an, a move intended to make money for the banks. Uh, it is worth asking, you know, you said, is competition getting worse? And wh what the impact of that is going to be will be felt differently based on the kind of consumer that we're talking about. So if you're rich and well off, you're not probably going to be bothered one way or the other by the lack of competition in the sector. But if you're a low income or racialized or even a small business, these moves will have very different impacts on you. And one of the problems that we have in Canada is we don't really uh, account for lending practices or we don't really monitor the impact of lending practices on these vulnerable communities. So we yeah. don't really even know what the how, how deep-seated the problems really are. Yeah, you read my mind because I was going to mention that because of this heavy regulation, there has emerged a space for these payday lenders, which are largely unregulated, mm -hmm. and cities are trying to form regulation policy on payday lenders because of the predatory loans that they give, and somehow they've squeezed into this space, and perhaps the over-regulation at the top is allowing people to squeeze in at the bottom and be predatory. But I, I do want to talk about perhaps the positives of a lack of competition, because mm -hmm. this isn't a one-sided conversation. The lack of competition via regulation is largely what kept our financial, the Canadian financial sector, I'm, I'm going to say healthy during the Great Recession. I, I know that we could probably quibble about my choice of word there, but largely the Canadian banks were never in any kind of credit danger during the Great Recession, mm -hmm. while American banks were collapsing left, right, and center. Oh, yeah. So... Michelle, 
again, I know these questions are like very broad and like kind of unfair, but are high bank fees <laughs> almost a price worth paying for a semblance of stability? I, I honestly, I, I bear in mind here that we, I, I'm not able to give a personal yeah, opinion. Yeah, we're, 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 we're just being loosey-goosey here. We're just being <laughs> yeah, loosey-goosey. But, yeah, th- that was absolutely said as a huge factor in 2008 when you had massive bank failures with the likes of Bear Stearns, for instance, going down to, in 20, 2008. Uh that kind of turmoil was simply not seen here to the same degree. Yes, of course, there was a recession. There was major economic impact. But there was never any even fear that the banks themselves were going to fail. We never had to consider the kind of bailout packages that were being floated in the U.S. And that became a very contentious political matter. So, yes, I, I think that was – is. The, the first and foremost reason why people will cite the regulation as a major pro here. And, and it's, I, I suspect a lot of people have seen the value of that. Uh, Canada has been undergoing some, some economic growth for, for quite some time now. Uh, Mark Carney, who was the governor of the Bank of Canada during that time and whose uh, handling of that situation really, really did a lot to burnish his credentials and, and advance his career further and, and make him governor of the Bank of England even. Um that was all seen as, as tied to the way that our financial sector weathered that particular storm. So I think that it's pretty easy to mount a fairly strong argument for the, the effectiveness of the regulations in our sector. Joita, is it at all reconcilable that regulation and high fees are a price worth paying for the semblance of financial sector stability? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, the regulation of our banking sector did keep it from having the kind of dealing with the kind of instability we saw south of the border and during the recession, as Michelle pointed out. So I think there's generally a good argument to be made for the Canadian sector, the banking sector being relatively well regulated and how that's actually been of of use to us because banks were not not as, as, as consumers, because the banks were not able to engage in risky lending practices like subprime loans, uh, which is what we saw south the border, which led to you know the, the collapse of the of the housing sector and other problems there. I don't need to sort of regurgitate what happened during the recession. Ah, sometimes it's worth reminding people that like <laughs> we were on the brink of economic collapse sixteen years ago. Sixteen years ago, which I know seems very far away, but I think we, because of the state of because of the amount of regulation, were largely protected from the worst of that. And I think your point about bank fees is an interesting one because. Um, I think, as you pointed out earlier in the program, it is a bit of a populist argument that bank fees in Canada are, are, are too high. And again, it depends on who you are. If you're a young person, if you're a student, if you're a person with a, a disability or anyone on a fixed income, really, the bank fees can really pinch. Whether we need to actually bring in additional regulation to try and um, examine uh bank fees in Canada and reduce them, at least in some sectors, I think is a really important conversation. I remember some years ago, they brought in some uh, exemptions around bank fees for seniors. So there needs to be an acknowledgement that um, bank fees are, um, they're, they're, they're part and parcel of our banking system here in Canada. I don't ever see us getting away from them entirely, but it might be worthwhile to have a more fulsome discussion about uh, the impact on marginalized communities, because as, as I think was very convincingly argued earlier before the break from a number of people, it's really those people with very little money to begin with who are hit the hardest by these bank fees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
there's there's more to this pie in this debate. It's actually quite an interesting piece of pie. And this is perhaps where I lose my populist allies, at least of uh, some political stripe, because I would argue that the Canadian financial sector actually presents a backbone of not just the Canadian financial stability, but sort of some... Let's call it accoutrement of the financial sector, i.e. pension plans, investment plans, RDSPs, RRSPs, TFSAs. Owning Canadian bank stock, and I'm one of the people who does own Mm -hmm. quite a bit of Canadian bank stock, is considered one of the absolute best investments you can make because of these regulations and because of the stability caused by the lack of competition. But again, knowing that a lot of that money is taken from consumers out of people's pockets, it leads me to this question. Again, this is where I'm probably going to lose uh, populist brethren of at least certain political stripe. Should any regulatory protected industry be subjected to a higher tax on their profits or the dividends that they give to shareholders? For example, major banks or cough telecom companies cough. <laughs> Michelle, again, I, I know that I'm probably going to lose some allies here, and this is where I get a little bit controversial, but if we're going to offer these private companies this much protection, should there be something that says, well, it's going to cost you? That protection comes with a price. It's almost like a mafia. <laughs> um as per usual on taxation matters, I don't feel I have necessarily the expertise to weigh in with the degree of confidence and, and, and knowledge that you bring to the table on this one. But I will say that that kind of argument uh, has a certain degree of logic to it. <laughs> there, there's, there is a, regulation ha, has its pros and cons, and I think we've been able to explore the pros with the finance sector more than, let's say, with telecom, which I know we've unpacked at different mm-hmm, uh, different mm-hmm. times and uncovered different kinds of issues. Uh, for that kind of thing, perhaps taxation would make a certain amount of sense, especially when there is a lack of, of competition, a clearly demonstrated one, uh, and, and one that's easily comparable. Uh, with telecom, it's easy to compare the, the, a cell phone bill uh, generated in Chicago with one generated in Toronto and see the, the wildly different circumstances that you're dealing with in terms of uh, competitive pricing and then the telecom landscape in general and banking it's a bit of the reverse that we've discussed here but uh, I, I do think there it's it's a discussion worth having and one that we don't actually hear very much I think just because of the general uh, allergic reaction people have to hearing the word tax which shuts down a number of really productive potentially productive conversations in their tracks before they can even really get started um, I will say circling back really quickly to the finance sector briefly is that there is one interesting component that hasn't been addressed here and has, isn't going to be addressed in discussion of these deals that we've talked about. But there is a major disconnect between two major pillars of the finance sector here, and that would be banks, which are federally regulated, and credit unions, mm. which are not. Mm. Those are regulated by the provinces. And uh, that gets into another one of our favorite topics here on the panel of jurisdictional... Everybody do <laughs> uh, a shot. We said the word jurisdiction. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but truly, it, it, it is a factor and, and one that I don't think gets discussed very often when considering finance sector policy. Mm-hmm. Joita, I'm giving you a last word on this one in regards to my hypothesis about perhaps changing the tax code around profits and dividends in heavily protected industry. Yes, exactly. And I think with the banking sector in particular, they have benefited from regulation because it's uh, prevented their competitors from engaging in cutthroat lending practices to say nothing of you know keeping new entrants out. You know, the big six are the big six for a reason. And, those reg- and the, regula- the regulatory environment has a lot to do with that. But if you'll allow me to 
um, be a little socialist. Uh, the fact of the matter is banks make massive profits. And so it's not, it has less to do, in my opinion, with, or, you know, it has less to do with the regulatory environment, but more it could be, you know, argued to do with the fact that they make such massive profits that they should be taxed on them. I think that's a nice spot to leave the conversation. And uh, I look forward to uh, no advertisers coming forward to sponsor now with Dave Brown from the uh, Big Six after uh, this segment. That's fine, though. That's okay. We we walk on our own two feet over here. We don't need bailouts on now with Dave Brown. Uh, Joita, Michelle, thank you for this. Coming up next, we share our thoughts on the COVID-19 lockdown protests that have been occurring in China. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Protests continue in China. They were largely prompted by strict COVID-19 policies implemented throughout the country. China's zero COVID policy includes major lockdowns and stringent testing. It caused significant economic disruption. There have also been reports of significant supply shortages for things like food. Since protests started in the last couple of weeks, the government has simultaneously eased some of those policies, but also cracked down on protesters. Joita, this story has your attention. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, it's utterly fascinating. Um, You have to remember that uh, the zero COVID policy itself was very contentious. And then you get into the situation where just a few months ago, if you've been following the news and developments in China, you see Xi Jinping basically consolidating power. Um, He is now believed to be um, the most powerful head of state in China since Mao and uh, has abolished the term limit so that he can continue to be at the helm indefinitely. You've got all of that happening on the one hand and the party mechanisms putting all of that in place uh, uh, on the one hand. And then you get these protests. And it starts with uh, with a fire in an apartment building, which protesters contend uh, are a result of COVID restrictions. And it goes really big from there. And the ingenuity of the protesters is fascinating. To, to see, because uh, in China, the, there are many restrictions on freedom of speech and expression and a severe crackdown on dissent against the government. So how do people turn around and address that? They turn around and hold up white squares of paper. I wish it's one of those rare moments where I almost wish I could see because the visuals must have been striking. You can't really have political slogans on placards, so they don't. And they don't. no one can accuse them of saying anything against the government because no one's talking. You have these entirely silent, peaceful mass protests. And it really got me thinking about uh, what was going on in China. Are we just talking about COVID fatigue? Because we've heard a lot about COVID fatigue in Canada. Or is there more going on here? What does the international response... Um, have to be, and you'll allow me to be a little narcissist and make them narcissistic and make this about Canada and ourselves, although it clearly isn't. But it doesn't, you know, almost frame conversations about free speech differently in Canada, for example, when we think about what's been happening in China. But it has been really fascinating to see this take off. Yeah, lots to unpack there, Juita. Thank you for sort of putting those angles forward for us. I always find when you're talking about protest in totalitarian spaces or authoritarian spaces, I'm never too fascinated by the first 10 days or two weeks. 
I'm fascinated for the continuity. So in places like Iran, where we've seen protests mm-hmm. really continue for months on end, because we can also point to examples in Cuba last year where there was significant unrest for a couple of weeks. And then it kind of went away back to status quo. I like your question about COVID fatigue, because certainly COVID fatigue is part of this lockdown policies we know are unpopular, whether you live in a democracy or an authoritarian place. But the other element of this is that China's economy is collapsing. Like the real estate sector has collapsed. A lot of foreign investment has collapsed. They're, they're sort of... Uh, let's call it non-alignment on the war in Ukraine, has dried up some international investments. There is a serious economic flaw going on in China right now after essentially 40 years of straight growth. So I think this has a little more to do with co- than, than just COVID lockdowns. But Michelle, what's what do you make of the protests in China? I have to say, you guys have summed a lot of things up really beautifully, so I won't recap, but I also find it absolutely fascinating to watch, especially when you have a country with a history of having protests put down in particularly brutal fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything like this is going to evoke the specter of Tiananmen Square and what happened there. And anytime any kind of sustained protest comes up, I always watch with a certain amount of amazement in light of what's happened. And, and I, you know, it's, it is really striking. Uh, same with Iran. I've been watching these two in parallel and that there are different issues at play, but they're equally intriguing to watch develop. And and, uh, I I watch with sort of fingers crossed and and breath held in in both cases because you just never know how things are going to play out here. Um, I absolutely think this goes far, far, far beyond COVID fatigue. Yes, the fire that killed 10 people in that apartment building was allegedly um, exacerbated by the fact that it took too long to provide help for for. Uh, first responders to get past the COVID protections that have been put in place to shelter that building. But I think there's far more going on here than that. Dave, your economic point is is really uh, astute, I think. That has got to be being felt within China itself. The residents, I'm sure, have lots to say about that. Um, China's position in the global order is very much uh, in play right now with, with because of their non-alignment, I'm going to stick with your wording, Dave. I think it's it's apt. Um, but their their failure to condemn the war in Ukraine and their reluctance to to take a firm stand against Russia, not that they have taken a necessarily firm stand with Russia, but their their efforts to sort of stay sidelined on this are not going very well with the international community. That is going to bring additional pressure to bear. Uh, we've seen efforts at, at censorship in, in China that have sometimes worked and sometimes not. There's a whole lot going on there. You do have, as Joita pointed out, a leader who has consolidated power to a, to a degree that has not been seen for decades. I'm sure there's a whole generation with whom that does not quite sit right. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely positive that COVID-19 is the catalyst rather than the core cause here. Mm-hmm. As always, I've found some of the international response to be predictable, especially from people like U.S. President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on this front. Uh, talking about the freedom of the Chinese people and being a bit dismissive of the Chinese regime. It's pretty much been out of the playbook we've seen the last couple of years from those two individuals. But, Joita, what do you make of the international response or what should the international response look like? Well, I mean, generally the response in places like Canada has been very supportive of the protesters. And that itself is very interesting to see just, you know, how supportive um, Western countries, for want of a better phrase, have been of the protests in China. And yet they've treated... uh, domestic protesters who have opposed COVID restrictions very differently. Mm-hmm. The discourse has been mm-hmm. very different. But I think when it comes to China, you know, they have famously and historically not really cared about international response. I don't know if it's really going to make too much of a difference. I do think that the 
the, the what has really shaped the protest the, 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 because the government has eased several of these uh, these restrictions and I think that has been a direct impact mm-hmm. of the protests themselves mm-hmm. and has actually very little to do with the international con- uh, you know condemnation of, of these restrictions um, the other thing is you know we could for example we often routinely talk about bringing in economic sanctions and things like that but I, again China is such a big economy I don't really see that being brought to bear in any significant way either. I don't know what the right international response would be other than to obviously um, support uh, the ex- the freedom of, of speech and freedom of expression that these protesters are are Im- tend to have embodied. Uh, but it's, it's very hard to say what, if any, impact any sort of in- international condemnation would have on the Chinese government itself. Yeah, when you're talking about the evolution of democracy, oftentimes you have to leave it to self-determination. Otherwise, it is just foreign interference towards coup d'etat. I mean, I'm, I know I'm being a little bit exaggerating there. I'm, I may be being a little bit bombastic, but you have to be really careful about, about interfering with self-determination and democracy. And that's why a lot of what you get is just words. But Michelle, I know it's, I know it's a much bigger and broader question than just protest in China, but what, what do you think in international communities can do in these moments. I would suggest perhaps accepting exiles, trying to be mindful of refugees and exiles to welcome them inside your borders. But even then, you have to be a little bit mindful of that as well. I, exactly so. I mean, you you can do that. And, and I, I know there is, are many in, in this room and beyond who would support measures like that. And yet you then you get into domestic politics. And those can be very thorny, especially around migration, as we've seen many times before. Uh, Canada offering words and words only around China is not particularly surprising uh, for the reasons you mentioned, Dave. But also Canada is in a particularly tricky place when it comes to dealing with China. Uh, just last week, Canada released its Indo-Pacific strategy, which has been a document that's been awaited for a very long time throughout the whole Two Michaels drama that uh, preoccupied Chinese uh, foreign relations with Canada for a long time. Uh, that whole strategy is explicitly stated to to help mitigate the influence of China. So at a time when, when Canada is already taking a bit of a stronger economic position involving China, they're offering words of support against the uh, words of support to the protesters and, and then by extension kind of against the government. So uh, there are a number of, of more complicated issues at play here, uh, but in terms of what a response ought to look like, I think you're right, Dave, to sound the note of caution about getting too, too deeply entrenched and, and involved in matters that uh, – almost by definition, you can only do so much about. Yeah, it's tough to have your public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, say we want to create a foreign registries list to uh, to limit foreign interference in our country and then go out there and say, let's go interfere in somebody else's country. <laughs> you sure. know, it's, it, and then you open yourself to the kind of critiques that the, that the United States has faced for decades yeah, about yeah. involvement abroad. So. Let, let, let's stay with Joita's last thought there about the way in which protest abroad may reframe the way we think about protest domestically or conversations about freedom or free speech. Michelle, I'm going to stay with you on this one. When we look at places like Cuba, Iran, China, I'm just picking a couple of the really notable ones of mm-hmm. late. How does that reframe or even frame at all the way you think about the way we talk about free speech in Canada? Uh, okay, here's where you get into a particular pet issue of mine, and that is I have – it seems to me that in the past decade or so, the term freedom has become co-opted by a very specific sector of the political spectrum. 
And that has always really bothered me because those conversations are so different no matter where they're taking place. Uh, if, if they are taking place in a place like Iran or China, um, the whole concept of freedom, the notions that are being debated, uh, let's say, in the streets of Ottawa look very different mm-hmm. than the, uh, in places like in that what we're talking about here. Um, to have the term freedom be politicized in a democracy the way it has has always really troubled me. And I feel like it sent some conversations down some particularly unproductive paths. Um, so, yes, to me, it absolutely does offer a bit of a perspective check for those who are willing to to pay attention to what's going on elsewhere, where freedom really is at stake. Yeah, when we talk about freedom and democracy and free speech, it, it's fair to say there's a range there, right? Freedom is not some individual concept. Philosophers have been arguing about what freedom is for like 3,000 years. So yeah. definitely to think about the way in which it plays out in geopolitics, it allows us to frame and reframe and rethink and understand what some people are fighting for in that self-determination fight for democracy. Joita, you asked the question, but what do you think? Well, I think, uh, again, the context of the context in, in Iran or Cuba or China is very different. And I think it does open up a couple of it, it does present a couple of arguments for me. The first is I think we are very fortunate in Canada to have the liberties and the extended and, and, and relatively greater freedom in terms of expressing ourselves, a gathering in peaceful protest, uh, and not having to worry to the same extent about crackdown and state repression. It's not something we should ever take for granted. And freedom of speech and freedom of expression are so integral to democracy and civic participation. I think where it really has sort of got me thinking is we have had very fractious debates in Canada about free speech, especially around, uh, say, the trans community. Um, and, you know, when people have been asked to use certain pronouns and felt that that was an, an infringement on their freedom of speech. And there are so many other examples. I think these, uh, you know, when we talk about the protests in China or elsewhere, it does allow me to think anew about responsible use of free speech and whether there should be limits on free speech and what our sort of responsibilities are as a country which, compared to a place like China, has relatively greater freedoms of speech and expression. So it's not a conversation I think we have the time to get into today in in much depth, but I think it does allow us to take a sober second look, not just to be uh, grateful uh, that we have the, 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 the freedoms that we do have, but to also think about how we responsibly deploy those freedoms mm. in the service of our democracy. Well, next week is going to be our last official news panel of the year, our last official on-air news panel of the year before the show goes on a hiatus upon opening a new control room and new studio. So I think maybe that's something we can unpack because I sense we'll do a year in review and talk a little bit about the protests in Ottawa and talk a little more about the Emergencies Act because I don't want to open up that can of worm right here at the end of this conversation, (laughs) but I do think that's why we just spent seven weeks doing an inquiry into the Emergencies Act, because we do have to be really mindful about when we do crack down on, I'm going to put it in quotations, freedom uh, in that in that conversation. So let's leave it there for today, but I think that's something that we can pick up upon next week and reopen that can of worms as we do a bit of a year in review. Not that I'm producing in real time on the spot or anything over <laughs> here. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break here. Coming up next, we'll talk about genetic evidence being used to solve cold cases. So we'll explore the intersection between crime and genealogy. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. 
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic on deck. I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch here. A 61-year-old man has been arrested in the murder of two Toronto women from nearly four decades ago. Police used genetic testing from family members before serving a warrant to Joseph George Sutherland to get his DNA. We've previously spoken on this panel years and years ago about crime, cold cases, and genealogy. But Michelle, this story has you wanting to revisit the topic. Why? I have to confess, I didn't remember that we discussed this on the panel some a long time ago. Um, it was like but, in 2018 or 2019. It was a while ago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my apologies. I don't remember that. But uh, I <laughs> insight into my nerdy brain is that I'm happy to take on this issue any old time because I am a bit of a cold case and true crime nerd, even though we're now oversaturated in that market. But anyway. Um, <laughs> So I, I find these particular matters of, of great interest. These specific cold cases in Toronto were ones that I had also followed with particular interest. I had actually written about them before. Um, and then this new genealogy technology has really entered the picture and started to, to bring about some very dramatic resolution to some old cases. Um, we now have a, a person who stands accused of, of two homicides and, and police are openly talking about investigating further to see if he might be connected to any others. Um, <clears throat> this kind of technology was used to arrest an alleged serial killer in the United States who had gone undiscovered for decades, um, the Golden State Killer specifically, mm -hmm. is who I'm thinking of there. That, that was the one that we talked about on the panel previously. Okay, right. Oh, that, that makes some sense then. Um, but that was a real first, and we've seen that kind of use of genealogy, uh, investigative ge genetic genealogy is what the police call it, IgG, really taking off to the point where now the, the justice system has been able to record a few convictions uh, based on that kind of evidence. So I thought this would be a good time to revisit this because it's such a complicated issue in terms of where you stand on this. Uh, with the kinds of track record that I've just outlined and the cases and the, the arrests that have been made, mounting an argument in favor of using IgG is not that difficult. You've got some very, very persuasive results to fall back mm. on. For those who are opposed to it, though, the privacy concerns about people using things like Ancestry.com or um, any of the genealogy services that are available out there uh, who are right, you know, submitting their data in, in the interest of finding more, more about their family tree and then mm -hmm. potentially having it used for completely different purposes, that might even bring uh, some detrimental results to their own family members. That is a, a privacy thicket. You can mm -hmm. just imagine the kind of concerns. We don't have time to enumerate all the concerns that get, come out of that. But, but suffice to say that IDG has very, very strong proponents and equally strong detractors. And in light of all this, I thought it might be fun to uh, to dive back into this one for a little bit. So I'm going to try to make a really broad definition here of IgG because I think we've cited examples without necessarily defining what it is. It's largely authorities scraping for data from these websites that is actually genetic data and trying to match it to crimes. It's like yes. really mm -hmm. fascinating stuff, but it also like makes you feel maybe just a teensy bit icky. That said, there's also a component of justice here. Mm -hmm. Like, do people deserve justice if their family members were murdered? I don't mean to laugh as I say that, but like it seems so obvious that like it's preposterous. So you can see where the critics are and you can see where the supporters are. Joita, where do you find yourself landing in this conversation? I think it all depends on the application. So, of course, it's very hard to countenance a situation where an individual's privacy concern would be seen as 
greater having greater societal value than resolving a cold case. But again, I mean, you could have other scenarios where um, you, you you know these private companies hand over gen- genetic data to insurance companies and they de- start in denying insurance claims, saying you have a history of diabetes mm-hmm. or stroke mm-hmm. in your family. So it yep. all comes down to the application. And I think when we think about uh, police investigations and IgG in particular, there isn't enough. Uh, we don't have enough um, judicial oversight yet in Canada. We don't have enough exactly. processes and procedures in place in Canada. And bearing in mind that our genetic information is probably the most personal information we can have, it does need to be subject to, I think, a very high and rigorous amount of scrutiny in terms of our privacy. Um, the question of consent comes up. So you might hand over your swab, but what does that mean for all the relatives who might get tracked yes, in the process? Yes. Exactly. And, and you know, yeah. it's not just a privacy concern. It's also a civil liberties concern. Are we opening up the can and widening the scope of police surveillance? So, you, you know, does your aunt or uncle or grandparents now get um, trailed by the police or do their neighbors get questioned because uh, some, there was some kind of a flag? So there are all of these really interesting questions to, to uncover. I think the problem is it's so new that I think people are in equal parts fascinated and excited by its possibilities and intimidated by uh, letting the genie out of the bottle, as it were. The genealogy out of the bottle, as it were. Yeah, move move past and break things, right? This is this is big tech at its finest. And then the things you break turn into civil liberties. And it's fascinating because ultimately when we come to police investigations, one of the core underpinnings of getting access to data or information or searches is probable cause. And if you're just scraping data from websites or from these services, then like what is the probable cause? What did you have to prove Mm -hmm. to get that data? And to me, that's the piece of regulatory framework that needs to come into place. You have to prove probable cause to start getting your hands on this data as a police force. But Michelle, when you think about the regulatory framework, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a complex one, and I, I feel that this is one that desperately needs some attention paid to it. Um, the regulatory framework, I think, would have to be handled on a couple of ends. You'd need some regulation in terms of what uses the companies themselves can make of, of the data. Joey has raised some really uh, striking points about how it can be misused in insurance contexts, for instance. But I do think there also needs to be regulations put in place as to what other outside companies can have access to that and under what conditions. And I think this is where it comes back to what you're talking about, Dave, in terms of probable cause. I think the genie is out of the bottle in terms of having this available as an investigative tool for police. I don't think there's any way now that police are going to say, listen, yeah, you're, you know what, you're right. Yes, we, granted, we've solved all kinds of cold murders and we've caught a couple of serial killers, but yeah, you're right, we're going to abandon use of this tech. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there now needs to be a way for, to to. Re- Oh, we may have just muted Michelle, or Michelle may have just muted herself. Oh, no. No, no, no. Okay, maybe, maybe, well, we're, Hi. We, oh, there we yeah, go. We, we got Michelle back. Okay. We got Michelle back. Okay, okay. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I don't think that they're going to, to cease using this technology in light of the successes that they've had. There does now need to do be a way to reconcile those and put some pretty clear guidelines in place in terms of probable cause. All of this, though, I feel the need to point out that we don't know a lot about how this investigation unfolded, what kind of probable cause may or may not have existed. They're not saying much beyond the fact that this technology was put into play. Um, This case actually offered a bit of a fascinating snapshot in terms of the evolution of DNA technology and how it's been used. Uh, These were considered to be separate and and unassociated murders back in 1983. They were only linked in 2000, and now 22 years later, we have that resolution. 
evolution mm. after the DNA. Um, this case actually offered a bit of a fascinating snapshot in terms of the evolution of DNA technology and how it's been used. Uh, these were considered to be separate and unassociated murders back in 1983. They were only linked in 2000, and now 22 years later, we have that resolution mm. after the D a name was found for the DNA match that was established 22 years before. So cases like this offer a fascinating litmus test, but also expose where there's work to be done. We, I've got to hold you to 30 seconds each on this because media superstar Juita has to get to a different interview uh, for The Pulse. So, guys, 30 seconds or less. Would you ever consider swabbing your DNA to use these kinds of services? I would love to learn more about my family tree, but I don't think I want to give private corporations my DNA. Juita, what about you? No way, Jose. Michelle? Hard no on this end. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'm willing to give Spotify my data for the wrapped feature because I like to know what I was listening to this year. But yeah, you, you can't have my DNA. If I can't yeah. donate sperm to a sperm bank, you can't have my DNA or either. <laughs> uh, Michelle, I say goodbye to you here, but we'll talk to you on Monday morning. Sounds great, Dave. Have a great weekend. Joita, just before I say goodbye to you, and again, I know you've got to get to another interview here in a moment, but you've got a special broadcast coming up tomorrow for the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. That's right. Uh, happening tomorrow and carried live on AMI-audio. Join us from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern, and we'll have the 6th Annual International Day of Persons with Disabilities Conference with speakers and panelists. The theme is uh, Empowering Ourselves. How do we thrive in this new reality? It should be really interesting, and I hope you'll tune in. Right on, Joita. Thank you for this. Have a great broadcast tomorrow. Thank you. Take That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio and the special broadcast we have going tomorrow afternoon. AMI-audio, that's the place to be when you're not watching AMI-tv. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press as well, and we thank them both for their time today. Coming up after the break... I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will be here for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. In the second hour of our Friday, December the 2nd, 2022 show, Michael McNeely will review the new Steven Spielberg movie, The Fablemans, and Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will tell you about this year's winner of the Toronto Book Award. But let's begin the hour with the regional news updates. British Columbia's Medical Services Commission has applied for an injunction against TELUS's Health Life Plus program, accusing it of extra billing. Health Minister Adrian Dick says the investigation into the program's membership fees for health services began in February. It is very important to uphold the Medicare Care Protection Act, which is in place to preserve our publicly managed and fiscally sustainable health care system for British Columbia. Access to necessary medical care should be based on need and not on an individual's ability to pay. TELUS says the fees are not for primary care and only covered uninsured services like dietitians and kinesiologists. Over to the prairies, where the Manitoba government is taking a second look at a decision to not lay charges against fashion mogul Peter Nygaard. Justice Minister Kelvin Gortzen says the government will seek Crown attorneys from another province to take a look at the evidence that was brought forward more than a year ago. We will now seek out um, another jurisdiction who uh, whose Crown attorneys and uh, will will take a look at. Uh, 
at the evidence that's been brought forward by the police and then um, give us an opinion on uh, whether or not charges should be laid. Nygaard faces two sex charges in Quebec and nine in Ontario, dating as far back as the 1980s. Over to Ontario, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says he will not use the notwithstanding clause after a court struck down a law that limits wages for public sector workers. A judge struck down Bill 124 on Monday, saying it was unconstitutional as it infringes on rights of freedom of association and collective bargaining. Ford says the province will appeal the decision. Yes, we're, we're going to appeal. Uh, my hands are tied on what I can say. It's in front of the courts right now. I can say it was a very interesting verdict, to say the least, but that's about as far as I can comment on, on that. I think uh, we just look forward to the Court of Appeal. Groups representing public sector employees challenged the constitutionality of the law passed in 2019, which capped wage increases at 1% per year for public sector employees. And let's finish off in Atlantic Canada, where the Nova Scotia government is buying the historic Lunenburg foundry. It opened in 1891, but has been idle since November of 2021. The sale is expected to close in March. Financial terms were not disclosed. The Public Works Department says the foundry will support the region's shipbuilding and maintenance industry once an operator enters into a lease agreement with the province. That's your look at the regional news. Let's turn to the world of sports. We'll catch up with Brock Richardson for a chat. Brock, you've been on the beat all week for the Para Ice Hockey Cup going on. So what's the latest? Uh, the latest is that the uh, semifinals went exactly how we all predicted at the beginning of the week. But let's run it down for you quickly. Uh, USA wins 11-0 over Italy and Canada wins 7-0 over Czech. Czechia, which means that Canada versus U.S. will play in the gold medal final. Now... For me, there are two ways here that Canada needs to win or what they need to do to win the gold medal. Number one is they need to uh, stop Declan Farmer and Brody Roybal. These are both individuals who uh, beat you guys uh, basically double-handedly, if you will, um, between the team. Let somebody else on the United States beat you. Make sure that they do not have any opportunity to get to the net as they were frequently able to do during the event. And for Canada, it's for me, it's quite simple. You need more scoring depth. You know that your captain, Tyler McGregor, is going to score that, or can score. But you need more, more depth than that because you know USA is going to, uh, you know, make sure that he stops him like I told I told you that Canada needs to stop their two players. Well, USA is going to focus on McGregor and say, we're not letting him beat you. So you need guys like Liam Hickey, James Dunn, Dominic Cozzolino, who are all very talented, who need to step up in this gold medal final to, to put you guys over the edge and win. And if you don't hear those names on the broadcast, it's probably not going to go well for Canada. So, yeah, that's my quick synopsis of what needs to take place on Saturday. Brock, give me one more prediction here. What happens in the bronze medal game between Czechia and Italy? Who you got? I think Czechia uh, wins that again. I think they uh, made a real statement game against Italy. It was a tight game, but I think they get it again. 
This is where I'm a little disappointed in uh, TSN and the broadcast. There is no feed of the bronze medal game. The commentator last night through Hockey Canada said that he was going home early this morning and that TSN is taking over the coverage. The only game I see on TSN 3 is the gold medal game, which is a crying shame for those two nations (laughs) if, in fact, the bronze medal game is not broadcasted. I'm going to use some ableist language here. This tends to be one of the flaws of myopia that exists inside a lot of Canadian sports broadcasting that we will simply wrap ourselves in one flag and not actually cover all international competitions kind of like the way in which the World Cup has been covered in Canada. And we're about to fall into that trap. But before we do, Brock, let me just say there are games going on right now. You better not change the channel. I'll be very upset if you do. But Ghana is playing Uruguay, and Ghana controls their destiny to go to the next round. And let me just say publicly, Brock, I am here supporting Ghana today. Their first two games in the tournament against Korea and Portugal were in incredible. So let's go Ghana. Let's get into the knockout stage. Let's get another African team into the mix after Morocco got themselves at the top of of their group yesterday. We want more of these African teams getting through. Ghana plays a delightfully exciting brand of soccer. So let's go Ghana. Let's beat Uruguay. Let's get into the next round. This is what I want. Brock, let's put our horse blinders back on, though, and talk about the Canadian experience at the World Cup as Canada fell to Morocco yesterday 2-1. to one. Morocco wins the group. Canada goes home from Qatar with not a single win or a single draw as their results. Yes, I, I said this on the neutral zone uh, last week, and I, I, you know, I was hoping that... Um, there would be a win. I just feel like we missed an opportunity. Yeah, we scored our first goal and second in yesterday's game. Yep, all good. There was just no win. I understand that the buildup is for 2026. I get all of that. I just, I, I don't know. John Herdman didn't start the people that I thought he would start yesterday. I think, you know, some would argue, well, maybe giving others a chance that wouldn't have played as much if it wasn't for them being eliminated. Cool. But I think if the goals were always to score a goal, which check and, and even first and foremost, make the world cup check. And then if the goals were a winning game, I I think I would have started uh, a little bit differently, not starting Alfonso Davies. I, I questioned that yesterday. I, I know there's a bit of an injury. I get all that. But if the goal, if the three goals were making it, scoring a goal and winning the game, I think you could have put a, a better starting 11 out there than he did yesterday. So I question a little bit of the decision making mm-hmm. on John Herdman's part. Do I think he's the right guy for 2026? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you cut him off by the knees at this point. He, 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 he did something that they haven't done in... 30 plus years, you know, he gets credit for that, you know, and and they accomplished two out of the three goals that we kept hearing. But his decision making yesterday, I just question. And but overall, I would view this as a as a success, but just barely if you're Canada. Alfonso Davies fitness was in question going into the tournament and he played his butt off coming off some injuries. But I imagine after it was decided Canada was not going to be advancing to the next round. I feel like Byron Munich may have made a little call to Soccer Canada and said, 
you better put our guy on the bench there tomorrow. He played hurt for you, and we need him back for our own club season. If you want him for qualifying games and the next lead-up for the next tournaments, if you want us to be lenient with his schedule on our end, you better do us a little favor right here and uh, sit Mr. Davies down tomorrow, which I think there was probably a little bit of diplomatic negotiation going on there between Byron Munich and Soccer Canada. I will also say Alfonso Davies, by the end of the Croatia game, looked totally gassed. He looked like he was totally finished. And he's one of the players that I want to talk about, Brock, because he is clearly the best player on that team. Jonathan David's good. Cyril Laren's good. Atkiba Hutchinson's good. Buchanan's good. Alistair Johnson's good. But Alfonso Davies is clearly the class. And the problem that showed up is something that shows up oftentimes for Lionel Messi when he plays for Argentina. The rest of the squad is not up to his level, and they start trying to do things on their own. And to Messi's credit, over the course of the last decade, he's learned to sort of play within himself and not try to do everything. Alfonso Davies, especially in the Croatia game, was trying to do too much. And soccer is a sport that does not allow for that kind of individualized effort. Certainly individualized stars matter in soccer. We see when Cristiano Ronaldo works his way down the wing and works his way into the box, you can see that individual stylized greatness but they pick and choose their spots. When Lionel Messi is playing soccer, he walks like 95% of the game. You rarely see him run until he decides to run. So let's go back to your thought about Jonathan, about Jonathan Herdman the, or, 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 or John Herdman, the coach of Team Canada. He certainly has earned the right to shepherd this team towards 2026, not just for what he's done with the men's team, but he built the women's program, and then took them over the top to incredible success. John Herdman has earned the right for another go-round at this, but he's going to have to mature his style as well because we saw in CONCACAF qualifying, Canada threw their athleticism at teams. They just played at this incredible pace, which also gave Belgian trouble and gave Croatia trouble early. The problem is... These tactical masters and these incredible skill players for these teams, if they can hold up with you athletically, which oftentimes they will, as soon as you get into that tactic and control game, they'll obliterate you. So Herdman has to at least think a little bit about the athletic style with which he has Canada playing and start focusing a little bit more on ball movement and control rather than just athleticism, speed, and pressure. I don't know if that's your takeaway, Brock, but that's my takeaway from the last two weeks. It is because all we heard was, oh, we're going to get them on the speed. We're going to get them on the speed. And, and, and we saw what that did. I mean, they... They were able to catch Belgium, you know, on on their heels a bit. Who it turns out were no good, by the way. It turns out Belgium stunk. Right, and and everyone, and which which leads you to believe that, you know, Canada could have had a little bit of a better fate, specifically against Belgium. Which, if they got one win, it wouldn't have mattered. They're not advancing anyways. But it's it's that whole. What I didn't like, Dave, is when when we saw Belgium, they they played a, an amazing you know, 45 plus minute, uh, half. And then all of a sudden we saw them kind of take their foot off the gas and it's like, but wait, there's still extra time here. Why are you, why are you doing that? And then what did we see? Belgium did their tactical stuff and said, well, bam, you're going to sit on your back heels. We've been doing that, but now we have an opportunity to be on the front foot and they scored. And then it was never the same. And at times 
I didn't see up until yesterday. I didn't see the fight from Canada once they got down where it's like, we're down, we're out, we're done. There wasn't as much of a push after when they scored because it's like, oh, we got scored on and, and uh, you know, we, we, we got outplayed. And I, I didn't like that. So I agree. I think John Herdman needs to change his tactics. I, I think also he needs to manage his words a little bit better when coming off of games. I don't think, uh, you know, what he said headed into the Croatia yeah, game was we, necessary. We, we can't repeat what he said, but he definitely <laughs> challenged that Croatian team saying that we are going to do something to them that I uh, can't say on air. Yeah, and, and I mean, when you are the, um, you know, uh, lower team for all of your games, you, you don't necessarily earn the, the right to say what John Herdman said. I understand John Herdman was trying to get his team to run through a wall. I totally understand that. And if you wanted to say what he said in a huddle, that's no problem. Uh, that's with your own team. But then to publicly say it, I don't necessarily believe it inspired Croatia because if you need inspiration like that to play a good game, uh, I question your your you know desire as an athlete, but it can help. Um, but I think John needs to understand check his P's and Q's in situations like that because you're not even in the top 20 in nations. And so you don't have any business saying what you said. And I think Croatia made sure that we knew who, who messed up who in what situation here. And that's that. In the way that Belgium is clearly no longer the number two team in the world. They're at minimum number 17. Now based on the results of this tournament, Canada, in terms of their results and their goal differential, 31st out of 32 teams. The only team worse was Qatar. So uh, way to go, Canada. It was a humiliation. Brock, thank you for this. Thank you. We'll talk to you again Monday. That is Brock Richardson. He's the host of the Neutral Zone. And uh, not meaning to make him ride shotgun on me calling Canadian soccer humiliation, but it was. It was a letdown. Although I'm still satisfied. We are what we are. We're an emerging soccer nation. And I will repeat, let's go Ghana. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting out in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where snow flurries and possible snow squalls today are expected with up to four centimeters and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with the high of negative one feeling closer to negative nine. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sunny clouds with possible snow in the morning and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour the high is two, but with that wind chill, it's feeling like minus 12. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's a mix of sun and clouds with possible snow this morning as well. The high is two, and it's also feeling like minus 12. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly sunny. The high is three, but that wind chill makes it feel like minus 15. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is 7, but it feels like negative 7. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with possible snow this morning. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and the high is right around 0. Over to Brandon, Manitoba, where we start to see this really cold weather system. It's light snow in the morning, then cloudy. Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is negative 16, but it feels like minus 33. To Regina, Saskatchewan, 
It's light snow in the morning, then cloudy. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 20, but it's feeling like minus 36. And over to Alberta, we'll start with Lethbridge, where it is a mix of sun and clouds and possible snow in the morning. The high is minus 17, feeling like minus 36. And I know in the first hour, Dave was harping on me for saying that some areas were a lot colder, like Saskatoon, feeling like minus 44. Well, Red Deer, Alberta is very close. It's mainly sunny. Chance of snow later in the day, the high is minus 20, but with that wind chill, feels like minus 42. So it's uh, a cold day to be out in Red Deer or Saskatoon. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly sunny with a chance of snow later today. The high is minus 18, and that wind chill makes it feel like minus 31. And finally, we move to BC. So in Kelowna, it is mainly cloudy with a chance of snow later. The high is minus 10. That feels like minus 16. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, that's cloudy with snow beginning later in the day. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is 2 but it's gonna feel like minus nine. And a special weather statement is in effect due to the wet and hazardous conditions they're expecting later today. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Michael McNeely reviews the new Steven Spielberg movie, The Fablemans. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's get to a review of the new Steven Spielberg movie. It's called The Fablemans. Before we get to Michael McNeely's thoughts on this, we have a short clip of the movie. This one features Paul Dano as Burt Fableman talking to his son, Sammy, played by Gabriel LaBelle. Let's roll the clip. I want you to make a camping trip. You can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that'd be great. Get to it tomorrow, okay? Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. <laughs> Escape to nowhere. We're shooting all weekend. Shooting Dad, this weekend. We got like 40 guys coming to be in the movie. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trip stuff on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Please. Don't be selfish, she just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to, just to... died. It's, it's, how is that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. Let's bring in entertainment critic Michael McNeely for a review of The Fablemans. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. So, Michael, there's some hype around this sort of being a Steven Spielberg origin story, but it's not quite a biopic. So fill me in here. What's the difference? Actually, I think you might as well just go ahead and say that it's a biopic. Sammy is Steven, for all intents and purposes, if you look at a picture of Steven's father, it looks he looks like Paul Dano. 
it's it's quite striking. So what's happened is um, ultimately we're looking at Sammy Fableman as a stand-in for Steven Spielberg's childhood and teenage years. I think I think the film starts off with a ban, at least for all film lovers across the world, because we see Sammy slash Steven's first time going to the cinema, where they both watch the greatest show on earth. And that is that is true according to Steven's biography. But what's really interesting is that this scene starts off with 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 um um, Sammy's father and mother saying things like, you're going to go in there, you're going to sit down, the lights are going to go off, but your mommy and your daddy are, are nuts to you. There's nothing to be afraid of. Can you just imagine if Steven Spielberg was afraid of movies? We would never be here today. How much of the origin story is going to be experienced in this film? I'd say a fair amount. So what we know is that Steven Spielberg has been wanting to tell this story for some time. So he worked with playwright, screenwriter Tony Kushner, who they've worked together with um, a few times in the past. They worked together to tell this story. And the reason for that is because Spielberg was always trying to come to terms with his parents' divorce. And as you can see in the trailer that we showed you, there's a little bit of tension between the father and the mother and the father wanting Sammy slash Stephen to make a film that will help the mother come to terms with her own mother's death. So through that, we can see the magic of filmmaking to try and help people deal with their emotional challenges. But we can also see the pressure imposed on the filmmaker to, to do what he or she is told. So, Michael, why not just actually make a biopic about Spielberg? Do you think that having a fictional character of Sammy, does that add or take away from the essence of the movie? As a lawyer, I can tell you it's all about deniable plausibility. Um, but let's go back to the other film, but no. The point is, Sammy is Stephen when you want him to be, and then when you don't want him to be Stephen, he's not. So you can do whatever you want within those confines. Stephen Spielberg said that he had a hard time making this film because he wanted to make sure that his parents, his parents were depicted accurately, honestly, and with some compassion. Having seen this movie, I can tell you that the parents definitely get some critique for their parenting, but he also appreciates them for what they did despite their misguidedness at the time. So Stephen was growing up in the 1950s, which you can imagine was quite a conservative time. And the fact that his parents are Jewish and they got a divorce is is pretty groundbreaking, at least for the family structures at that time. Um, what's interesting about Stephen and Sammy's family was that there was a third person, a third parenting figure that lived with them. And that was the father's best friend, who the mom ends up falling in love with. So you basically have three parents instead of two parents. 
And so with this family structure, that there would have been some controversy, at least over the years, talking about, you know, why your mom had an affair with your father's best friend, da-da-da-da. And now, finally, Steven Spielberg can, you know, tell the story, but perhaps he's still a little bit conscious about what kinds of what kinds of gossip may be spread or what kinds of concerns may be had by everybody watching. So he has made a fictional family, the Fablemans. There are lots of movies about children nurturing or discovering their talents and passions. What makes this film stand out from others? Michelle Williams. That is the short answer. The long answer is that Michelle Williams is one of the greatest actors I've ever seen in my life. She plays, she plays um, Sammy's mother. And you may know her as playing Marilyn Monroe once upon a time. Um, ultimately, Sammy slash Steven, I'm going to keep doing this all the time, Sammy slash Steven's mom um, was a concert pianist. So she was very artistic. And as you can see, when we looked at um, Sammy slash Steven's father, he's an engineer, he's very hands-on. He is a workaholic. He actually ends up working for IBM and designs one of the first computer cash registers, which is pretty amazing. Um, but go back to Mitzi, who is Sam's mom, and Steven's mom has a different name, of course, but Mitzi, um, she had this history of being a concert pianist, but she's given it all up to raise a family. So then you have some issues with depression and um, issues with not being loved enough and not being appreciated enough in the household for giving up your, your career and your dreams and your passions. So ultimately, I think Michelle Williams is the difference here to make this film a story about a mother's regrets and a mother's hopes for the future. I, I think I know the answer to this question based on the way you've already spoken about the movie, but overall, did you like the film? Would you recommend it to others, the Fablemans? If you're a Steven Spielberg diehard, and who isn't? I mean, that's the question. If you haven't seen E.T. or Indiana Jones, or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or Munich, or, you know, AI... Saving, Pri Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can. Yes, we can go on and on and on. All those films. Jurassic Park. Any, any psychiatrist or any psychologist, they all lead back to Stephen's issues with his mother. So, and probably his father. But uh, if you have any interest in any of that whatsoever, then I think this film is for you. It's just a long, 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 long movie. It's two and a half hours. And I'm starting to really dislike going to the cineplex because they insist on giving me a half hour of trailers and previews and advertisements for Amazon. And I'm like, can we just start the movie that's supposed to be really long, please? But no, <laughs> we have to do another advertisement for RBC or for, you know, happy families or whatever. 
hey, how are people going to buy cars if they don't see them in their uh, their movie tra- in their movie trailers spliced right in? Uh, Michael, what do you think this film has an opportunity to do with during the awards season? Maybe the uh, Academy Awards. Well, you know the Academy Awards. Everybody loves Steven Spielberg. So you probably get some jokes about how Steven's hiding behind the guise of Sammy. And I think, of course, this is going to be, this is going to be, uh, it's going to be an amazing film for people to talk about. And it's going to, it's going to wipe out all the awards, I think, that it can get its hands on. But I really hope that Michelle Williams gets her due. And I, this may sound similar to a question I asked you previously, but what would you give this movie out of 10? So that's the question I've been scared of. I need to watch this movie a second time because ultimately I was paying attention to the one thing. I was annoyed. I was annoyed at how Sammy was a prodigy. I was jealous of Sammy, okay? And that was why I was uh, more than my eyes a bit. And I was like, oh my God, Sammy is going to get the whole family together. He's such a great filmmaker. And ultimately I realized that my jealousy has no place or time in this. So I would like to watch it again and just focus on Michelle Williams because she did stand out to me even when I was paying attention to Sammy. Mm. And ultimately, I now realize that this film is really about the the discord and the dysfunction of the family, which is not something that I was looking for at the first time. So it's it's kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a lesson and sometimes that we have to pay attention to different things every time we watch a movie. Michael, we listed off a whole bunch of great Steven Spielberg movies, and this is a borderline unfair question. What is your favorite Spielberg movie and why? Oh, boy. You know what? I think I'm going to say Indiana Jones right now. I'm not going to say a specific one. I'm just going to say the mythology that Steven Spielberg set out with Indiana Jones has been has been still with us to this day. And speak of the devil, my friend Toby Jones, who we talked about so long ago, will be in the new Indiana Jones movie. So, you know, um I think I think Steven Spielberg is just one of those directors that can direct anything in any genre. And we we haven't had much of that lately. So I, I recommend that there's probably a movie for everyone. Uh, yeah. When it comes to Steven Spielberg, there sure is. In a one-year span, he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's Lists. <laughs> Different movies, to say the least, and both exceptional <laughs> in their own way. Uh, people forget, as well, that he was the executive producer on the first Transformers movie, so... That's the best Spielberg movie. Uh, Michael, we gotta get out of here. Have a great day. You too. And don't be like Sammy, okay? Just just find different hobbies. <laughs> Wait, what's that supposed to mean? Does that mean that I have to give up this hobby? That's Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, with a review of the new Spielberg movie, The Fablemans. And you can follow Michael on Twitter, at Michael D. McNeely. At Michael D. McNeely. McNeely spelt with two E's. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya and Alex and maybe Grace. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Before the break, I said, hey, maybe we'd catch up with Grace and Alex and Ramya. We will do none of those things because we're tight for time. So I'll simply tell you that today at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Kelly and Company, John Beeler will inform you about a massive Twitter data leak that exposed over 5.4 million accounts and a popular audiobook series has charmed its way up to a billion hours of listening. Billion with a B. Ryan Huey has the scoop on that one. Kelly and Company comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will tell you about the winner of this year's Toronto Book Award. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I think I got my Dave Stink all over Ghana while I was talking about the World Cup. I can't give you live play-by-play because FIFA is very litigious, but uh, Uruguay, up to nothing. I should never talk about the teams that I support. It always goes badly. But let's keep going, Ghana. We can do this thing. So this hour, we've talked about sports. We've talked about movies. Well, let's be Renaissance people. Let's make ourselves more well-rounded by talking about literature with Karen McKay, the communications manager at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Always happy to be more well-rounded after I chat with you. So let's start off with the winner of the Toronto Book Award. Karen, who took home the honors? Sarah Pauly took it home. So you might remember her as a child actor. She's Mm -hmm. also a producer. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So she wrote the book. uh, It's called Run Towards Danger after she had a very sincere or a very severe concussion. And one of her therapists said that she needed to run towards the things that were causing her symptoms to be worse. And so she took that idea and she applied it to other areas of her life. So this book has six essays on the failability of memory and the dialogue between her past and present. It's anybody that I talked to who's read this book says it's fantastic. So yeah, she took home the 2022 Toronto Book Award for that just a couple weeks ago. Karen, it doesn't surprise me because I feel like you and I have talked about this book a couple of times this year and it's either made its way onto short lists or long lists. It's been really well regarded right since the drop. It has. And so if you've got somebody who likes that kind of book, this is an excellent one for Christmas or pick it up for yourself. It's not long. It's six essays, but it'll make you think. Mm. Speaking of a book that would be great around the holiday season, Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry recently added to the SELA collection. Give me a bit of insight on Michelle Obama's book. So this is one that's been much anticipated. She narrates the book as she has in the past, and she opens up this sort of frank conversation with readers about questions that we all wrestle with. How do we create enduring and honest relationships? How do we find community? How do we discover our own strengths? And she also gives us some tools that she uses to sort of overcome some of those issues in her life or that she uses to apply to these questions. So highly anticipated book. We have it in our collection right now in synthetic audio and Braille but we're expecting the human narrated audio in the next couple of days. So I wanted to highlight this one because this is one we've had lots of requests on. Mm, people love those human narrated audiobooks, don't they? They do. They're definitely a uh, fan favorite at SELA. 
Yeah, especially when it's the author who does the narration, right? Because you can feel that genuine, earnest nature of the way in which they want to express themselves. Exactly. It's just more on, uh, authentic, I mm-hmm. think. So, yeah. There you go. Authentic. That that's that's the mm-hmm. right word right there. Earnest almost is like a dismissive term. Uh, Karen, you always have a great list of books for us to keep us occupied heading into a weekend. So we'll finish up here with the SELA featured selections. And this one was a no-brainer to mark the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. That's the theme this week. So let's talk about a couple of these. Artificial Divide by Robert Kingett. Right. So Robert's actually edited this book, and he is um, a blind man who's openly gay. And he says in the intro to this book that he remembers reading a book when he was younger about a gay character for the first time and what impact that had on him to see himself represented in literature and how he was both um, available, like he was both able to sort of follow this particular character and relate to them inside and outside the literary world. So he went looking for books for with blind characters that had a similar sort of theme for him and he couldn't find them. So he's collected 16 essays written by authors who are blind or have low vision, and they show everything from how the characters are hurt, how they get revenge, how they outsmart bullies, or how they go on epic adventures. But what he really wanted to see was characters that didn't have to overcome their blindness to participate in a plot or didn't have to overcome people's perceptions of a character because they were blind. What he wanted were blind characters who dealt with a plot that didn't hinge on their own blindness. So he collected these stories. Some of the the writers are very established. Others are are newer writers. Uh, But it really has a very diverse uh, range of stories, of characters, of nuances. And it's one that we have really been highly anticipating. We've been talking to the editor for a couple of months now about getting this one in a collection. So we're, we're thrilled. It just came in two weeks ago. That's one that also features a noted columnist from now with Dave Brown. Lawrence Gunther has one of the uh, stories in that <laughs> book. So always happy to see Lawrence getting a little bit of extra love here. Let's talk about one from a major, major U.S. disability advocate, Alice Wong, writing a book called Disability Visibility. Right. So folks probably know Alice. She's the founder and director of Disability Visibility Project, which is an online community. And she's written this book, but this is an adaptation for young adults. And what I love about that is that um, because it's an adaptation, there's an intro to each of the stories to give some context and some explanation to the reader so that because it doesn't assume that folks are going to understand what they're about to read. And it, I think it sort of lays the groundwork that we all have something to learn about these different experiences. So this book uh, has 17 eye-opening essays about disability. There's a wide range of disabilities represented, uh, everything from intellectual to physical. There's stories from the deaf community and the blind community. And I think, like we just talked about, what own stories do is offer that really authentic insight into the complexity and the challenges. And in some of the stories, the real richness of the disability experience. There's a lot of discussion about ableism and inequality, but there's also a lot about joy and just about um, living a life that is fully formed. So this account asks readers to really think about disabled people, not just as individuals who are to be fixed, and I'm using air quotes for that, but as members of communities with its own history and its own culture and its own movement. There's stories from the past and the present. There's some uh, stories for future generations in there. And the Chicago Tribune named this one of the best books published in the summer of 2020 and called it hopeful, compelling, and insightful. So it's another one to pick up, especially if you have a young person in your life who wants to learn more about 
their place in it, whether they have a disability or not, about their place in the world. I think this is a really insightful book, and it helps us understand one another better. Yeah, it's foundational. It's a foundational piece of understanding. It's a really, it's a masterpiece by Alice Wong, if I'm being totally frank. Uh, let's move you over to... It? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've yeah. long been a fan of Alice's work. I started following her on social uh, a few years ago, and then, yeah, when the book came out, I read it for sure. It's brilliant, brilliant yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, Karen, you know, it's one of the interesting things about being a person with a disability. Sometimes we almost don't even know about our own identifications until somebody can crystallize it for us. It's it's really it's fascinating that we can go on our own our own journeys of growth as well. And you know that's what reading's for. Uh, Karen, let's talk about <laughs> sitting pretty with uh, Rebecca Tossig. So this is another person that you may know. This is a memoir in essay form from a disability advocate. She's uh, got an Instagram account called Sitting Pretty, and she's got a PhD in creative nonfiction and disability studies from the University of Kansas. Of Kansas. So through this book, she's processing a lifetime of memory. She paints this really very beautiful, nuanced portrait of a body that looks and moves differently than most and how how she navigates the world in that body. So when she was growing up, she was paralyzed. Uh, She's growing up in the 90s and the early 20s, and she said that she only saw disability depicted as something that was monstrous, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, or inspirational, like Helen Keller, or angelic, like Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, brother. And none of that felt right. She wanted to see more stories that allowed disability to be complex and ordinary and uncomfortable and painful and fulfilling the full range of life as it is for every human. And so she wrote these um, these different essays. She reflects on kindness and charity and all the complications of both of those things, about living independently and uh, dependently and what that means for her, about how she experiences intimacy and also about the ableism in, in the, the media and in just everyday life. So she says that she often gets the message from the world that we're just not thinking about you at all as disabled people. And I think that this book will flip that on its head for readers because they'll start to think about things differently, which really, as you said earlier, that's what reading's all about, is to (laughs) let us share each other's stories, right? And really sort of learn more about these things. So it's beautiful. She's a fantastic writer. And if you haven't read this one, it's one I'd highly recommend. Karen, imagine us talking about the virtues of reading. Uh, (laughs) Funny, funny thing that coming from you and me. Uh, Karen, I've got to hold you to 30 seconds on this, but Deaf Utopia by Niall DeMarco. Okay, so some folks may know Niall DeMarco. He's an actor. He was on America's Top Model and Dancing with the Stars. He's uh, deaf and LGBTQ advocate. He's part of a, a huge Italian family um, in Queens, New York, and he, his family's mostly deaf. He was got a twin brother. When his parents found that he out that he was deaf, they they were overjoyed because they wanted him to be part of their culture. And so he goes on and tells this story about what it's like to be part of the deaf community, how proud he is of that. It's sort of like a, a love letter to the American Sign Language, which is his first language. Beautiful book. We get to range of experiences because he's got brothers and parents and grandparents who are all deaf. So we see how this family moves through the world. They're, they're proud and uh, loving and just it's a beautiful book. Karen, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. That's Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time we have for the show today and this week. We'll talk to you Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.